Well, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. I'm speaking to the outer depths of the internet here to do that. Lord, we do thank you for uh, the day, this beautiful day that you've provided. Um, we thank you for your creation. Um, Lord, we do uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, teach this class. <clears throat> and uh, I pray that um, you would be magnified in this, um, in this time today, Lord, especially in the, next, in the weeks to come as well. Um, Father, we know that we um, can't answer everything or have an answer to perhaps everything, but Lord, that we would be um, bold in the proclamation of the answers that you have revealed about yourself and that we would stand firmly on um, your truth. And so I pray today that um, this lesson and the series of lessons that we're into will be helpful uh, for the people who are watching or that for some it would help to strengthen their faith and for others, Lord, it would help to um, help them to begin to question what they have built their faith upon. And more importantly, who they've built their faith upon. And so, Father, I pray that um, I would be clear in what I say today. I would be clear in my thoughts. Um, but more importantly, God, that they would be honoring to you. And so, <clears throat> I pray these things and ask them in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, welcome back. All of you, <laughs> welcome back to, uh, to Apologetics. Um, the handout today, uh, just like before, um, is uh, on the, uh, on the uh, website. So I think on, and I haven't double-checked that, but I believe it's the same place it was last week as well. We're also projecting it here. I know for those of you who are, who are coming in on Zoom, that may be kind of hard to see up on the screen, so we provided a digital copy for that. It's on the main uh, COVID webpage um, for the, from the church's website. So if you want to pull that up, that might be super helpful um, in that. Um, so I want to begin today and pick up from where we left off last time. <clears throat> so just a brief, really brief recap of the last two weeks. Um, I began this series on apologetics by looking at um, different worldviews, the test for a worldview, the main elements that make up a worldview, God, <clears throat> metaphysics, um, epistemology, all those things. You can refer back to that, to those lessons. Um, and then I said to you uh, in, in passing, if, if one part of a worldview doesn't hold up, then we might want to reconsider that worldview. In other words, if they don't match up to those tests, then we might want to reconsider that worldview. And so the, the worldview that I landed on um, in particular was a worldview called naturalism. And naturalism is an interesting worldview in a, for a lot of reasons, but one of the primary reasons is that it's the dominant worldview today. It is consistent with this, what sometimes we call scientific materialism or materialistic naturalism. It has different kind of wording and phrases to it, but at the bottom of it is this idea of naturalism. And naturalism, once again, and I've given you sort of probably this very silly but hopefully memorable um, kind of um, illustration of that. Naturalism holds that the universe is essentially a closed system. And I've used this box as sort of a representation of that. Okay? And what naturalism holds to is that um, everything that's explanatory within the known universe, inside the box, can be explained from within the box. In other words, there's nothing, there's no thing that's 
external to the box. There's no God, um, and because of that, there's no miracles, and so everything has to be explained from within the box. Uh, that's the culture that we live in today. It's dominant in the, the dominant elite culture that we live in today, such as universities, um, where we see the elite intelligentsia. This is the dominant worldview that's held, and held to very tightly as well. And so one of the challenges that we want to come to when we get to this worldview is not perhaps at the onset to try to make an ar a direct argument for the existence of God, um, because in that worldview, there is no God. So how do you argue for something for, for this, for people who hold a worldview that doesn't actually exist in, to begin with? So I've come at this sort of the back doorway, and I've come at it by making, some, making a series of arguments, and I began that argument last week. Um, and that is the argument, if we can point out something that's transcendent of the box, if there's one thing that's outside the box that's not explanatory or explained from within, then that worldview has some major foundational problems to it. Okay? And one of the arguments that I started posed to you last week is the argument that's called the transcendental argument, the transcending argument. And that is an argument for truth itself. That is an argument for the laws of logic. Okay? And in particular, I'm referring to the law of non-contradiction, which is what I kind of hammered on last week, and also the law of causality. So just to rehash the bidding here, the law of non-contradiction is that something can't be A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. Okay? So I can't be holding a box in my hand and not holding a box in my hand at the same time in the same relationship. So that was kind of the, the part and parcel of last week. The other law of logic is the law of causality. And the law of causality is this, that every effect, every effect must have a prior cause. Notice what I did not say, that everything must have a cause. Now, that may sound like semantics, but it's actually really important, okay? Uh, and it's so important that there's a very famous um, philosopher, there's a very famous atheist of the 19th century, uh, Bertrand Russell, and he was an atheist because he got this definition of causality wrong, and at 19 years old, he's a young guy and uber smart, he read an essay by John Stuart Mill, and Mill, who was brilliant, 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 also got the definition of the law of causality wrong too. And so when Mill, when Mill wrote the essay that everything must have a cause, his assumption was, well, God's a thing, therefore God must have a cause, and that cause must have a cause, and that must have a cause, so you get sort of this infinite regression. And that doesn't make any logical sense, so there is no God. And for Bertrand Russell, at 19 years old, this made perfect sense. It made perfect sense, but the problem is it was the wrong definition. It's not that everything must have a cause, but that every effect must have a cause, an antecedent cause. Now the question comes is, what is an effect? And can we show something that's an effect? Okay. And so that's going to be really important to look at. So last week, I honed in on, at the end, by looking at the element, the argument for truth. And I said, there's no escaping that. Now, I borrowed this argument from Gordon Clark, 
who borrowed this ultimately from Augustine, okay? Truth exists, truth's immutable, truth's eternal, truth is mental, truth's superior to the human mind, truth is of and from God. And I know I kind of flipped through those pretty quick. If you want to follow up with some email questions, super happy. I've gotten a few emails already, very welcome to, to email me. I, I welcome those as well and, and look forward to those. But one of the things I left off with last week in my exuberance um, to read a quote from Augustine is that I gave a question last week at the very end of all that, and I said, well, whatever happened, because that's what I titled last week's lesson, like, whatever happened to truth? Where'd it go? Bless you. And the answer to whatever happened to truth, and the answer is, well, nothing happened to truth. It's alive and well. It has always been alive and well, even after you and I will not be alive or well. It will go on, okay? There's the eternality of truth, and there's no escaping it, okay? So if you deny truth, right, you say that it doesn't exist, you've affirmed a truth, and there's no escaping that, okay? So that's, that's where we left off last week. So one of the things I wanna, as we get into this week's um, lesson and kind of argument today is to also remind you of this as well. This, these are cumulative or cumulative arguments to be made. So some, someone, you may make the transcend, transcendental argument to someone, and that may not be sufficient reason for them, although you would have to rely upon reason to say there is no sufficient reason. So once again, you're still stuck in that, that argument. But for some people, that just may not be enough for them. They may want more information and more argumentation, and rightly so. That seems fair and right. So today we add another um, card into the deck, so to speak. And this is uh, referred to as, we'll get into more in the definition of this in a minute, but this is a, a first cause argument, which has had a lot of popularity and a lot of um, ridicule about this argument. So we'll go into a little bit of that today, uh, what this argument is, and I'll make the argument to you. Um, and then if we're intellectually honest, we will look at perhaps some of, the, some of the pushback against this argument as well. Well, before I do all that, I want to um, have you look with me. I've put it up on the handout, um, and then you obviously would probably want to look at this in your Bible as well. But one of the places I want to look today as we get into this argument is this really famous passage in Romans chapter 1. Okay? Romans 1, uh, verses 19 through 20, okay? So Paul is, if you read the book of Romans, it is sort of his magnum opus of his writing in some ways. I mean, it is, it is his systematic theology. And Paul will give this sweeping view of, of creation, history, fall, redemption. He'll give you the gospel. And he'll give you the bad news first, and then he'll get into the good news, right? And chapter 1 will give you the really bad news of fallen humanity, all right? and where this fallenness will go. Right? We are fallen in the way of always at the deep core of who we are, of our wills, and of our thinking as well. Well, Paul does something really interesting, and I have, this is, this is not in the Bible, I've, or this underline's not, I've done the underlining here, but I, wanted, I did that to draw your attention to a particular phrase that Paul uses here. Okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into to verse 19, Hopefully, you'll go back and read chapter 1. That would be super helpful for you and your own soul to read that, to read what Paul's arguing there. But Paul says this. This is chapter 1, Romans, starting with verse 19. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, 
Why? Well, because God has shown it to them. Now, I'll stop here for a second. Remember that 19th century philosopher, atheist, John Stuart Mill? He was asked once what would happen if someday when he did indeed die and he got to stand before God, what one question, if God asked him, like, why didn't you believe, what one question would you ask God? Have you ever thought about that? Like, what would you ask God if you saw him for the first time? And Mill said, well, the first question I would ask him is, Do you, why didn't you supply enough evidence for me to know? Why didn't you give me enough evidence? Because if you, it's a blame game, right? If you had given me enough evidence, I would have believed in you. We would have cut through all this stuff, right? Well, Paul says that John Stuart Mill had plenty of evidence. You and I have plenty of evidence. It's the fact of what we do with that evidence, right? Where do we go with it? Notice what Paul says. It says, because God has shown it to them, that he's plain. Well, what has he shown? Well, he's shown his invisible attributes. Namely, so more specifically, his eternal power and divine nature. So his eternal power in his nature, his divine nature, okay? that have been clearly perceived. It's been manifestly perceived. How long has it been perceived? Well, Paul says, ever since the creation of the world. And then this phrase, in the things that have been made. And then this last tag phrase, right, which... If Paul was talking to John Stuart Mill, Paul would have reminded Mill of this very thing, so that we, you and I, John Stuart Mill, most famous atheist, you and I, we're without excuse. In other words, you can't die, you, you won't be able to someday when you die stand before God and say, I would have believed in you, I just didn't have the sufficient evidence. I didn't know. Science told me this, other people told me this. Yeah, I just didn't have enough evidence. You can't really hold me responsible for that, right? And Paul says, actually, uh, yeah. God will ultimately hold us responsible because he has, been, he has clearly shown himself. Now, the, friends, a pushback comes here, I know, because I've, been, I've had this pushback at, at me before, too. Like, what is so clear about this? If this is so clear, like, why doesn't everybody believe? I don't get this. Why is this so clear? And once again, we go back to what Paul is stating here in God's eternal, his nature and his attributes as well, his power and his attributes. And that's what we want to look at today, right? I remind you that naturalism's essential argument is this. It's based on the element of science, right, or scientism. And, and naturalism holds that um, science works, it's able to make predictions, science works, therefore we should trust it. And since science works and we should trust it, science says to us that God does not exist. The God hypothesis is no longer needed. And even that word hypothesis is very scientific sounding. And because that science tells us that God doesn't exist, we don't need him, therefore, end of conclusion, God does not exist. And the only thing that does exist, the only thing that's explainable for, for you and I, for the fact that we're here, 
for the fact the reason that anything is here, the fact that you're able to hear my voice, that the, that the, the small bones inside your ear are tumbling, the small hairs that's inside those bones are picking up those vibrations and translating that to sound inside the cerebral cortex of your brain, the fact that you have consciousness and awareness that you are here, and that you are aware that you are aware, is purely and utterly by chance and undirected um, mutation. And ultimately, if you push that back far enough, you get an argument like this, that all of life and all the complexity of life comes out of nothingness, comes out of death. Consciousness, life, awareness, all those things come out of death. That's a tough one to swallow. <laughs> and the, the pushback is, well, the reason that's tough to swallow is because you are, you've, you're delusional about this idea of God, the God delusion. Very famous 20th century atheist, one of the, what's called the five horsemen of the new atheism, is a guy by the name of Richard Dawkins. And he wrote this really famous book called The God Delusion. Let me give you the, the, the logic behind the thesis of that, and here it is, okay? In the beginning was the particles. And the particles eventually formed complex stuff. And that complex stuff eventually produced more complex stuff until we get to a living cell. And then those living cells produce something even more complex, which is ultimately you and I, it's man. And that, out of that complexity of man comes in our brains, our evolutionary brains, the idea of God, which Dawkins says is obviously a delusion. And so why we're here today, according to Dawkins, is because we've thought up the idea of God. Okay? Now, <laughs> that's kind of it in the nutshell, right? And then you have these other big questions of not just the fact of why we're here, how did we get here, why do we have cognition, how do we have consciousness? Um, but if you notice in that, and I've leapt through that argument really quickly, but there's some, there's some big questions, there's some big fundamental world, worldview questions to be answered. Um, how did that complex stuff eventually begin? Friends, Darwinism, which Dawkins says gave him the right to be intellectually fulfilled as an atheist, Darwinism is an explanation for the, the survival of the species. It's a terrible answer for, for the arrival of the species. I'll say that again. I'm not playing word games here. Um, Dawkins is intellectually fulfilled as an atheist, he says, because Darwin gives the an these answers, these big questions. And Darwinism, just as an ism, just as a worldview, is an argument for the survival of the species not the arrival of the species. It can't answer that question, nor has it, nor will it, okay? So how in the world do we get to God from the world? So I'm making an argument this morning, as I did last week, um, that hopefully we'll look at things, if something, once again, exists outside the box, can we have a sufficient explanation that will diffuse and dismantle the worldview of naturalism. That's what we want to look at. And so I come to you today with an argument that um, that's, I didn't make up, because I'm not that smart, I, I wish I were that smart, 
This is an old argument. It's called the cosmological argument. It comes from this Greek word of cosmos, which actually means order. Okay? It's another word for the world as well. The cosmological argument. And it was, it was first purported um, by Aristotle and later refined by a very, very, very smart um, theologian named Thomas Aquinas. Okay. And Aquinas gives his five proofs or five arguments for the existence of God. Cosmological one is, is one of those arguments. It's sometimes referred to, once again, as a first cause argument. And I've, I've reduced this argument down to um, a three-step premise. Okay. So you can see that on the handout. So this is point number two on the handout, the cosmological argument. So whatever began to exist has a cause, a beginner. Number two, uh, the universe, this box, had a beginning. Therefore, notice the logic that I'm using here. Um, therefore, the universe must have a cause. Now, friends, the, the premise here, ironically, that, got, that had the most question marks beside it was premise number two. Premise number two, that the universe began to exist. Okay? Um, and and that's, a, that's a really important question we want to look at today. So I'm going to, in the time we have, I'm going to spend a little bit of time working through that. So I've re, kind of refigured the cosmological argument. And I did it by introducing to you two weeks ago my silly example of a box. I drew it on the handout, right? So I want for us to kind of consider um, the idea of this box today. This box, which we are using as a representation of the known universe, everything that's in existence, if we want to try to explain why this box exists, then we really only have four possibilities. And I've read all kinds of ways that people have kind of maneuvered around these four possibilities, but I can't think of any other way from everything I've read that the other arguments that you can't subsume in one of these four possibilities. You can't put under one of these four possibilities. Okay. So number one is this, and I'll, I'm going to do an overview really quick, and then we'll come back and take a look at each one of these really fast. Um, one of the possibilities that we have this box, that the universe, is that the box is an illusion. Okay, and if you don't know what an illusion is, it means that it doesn't exist. It's a fig newton of, of your imagination, right? It doesn't exist. In other words, you're like in the matrix, right? You're, you're like a brain in a vat, right? So you're all hooked up, um, and you're perceiving things, and you think that you're perceiving things, but maybe the things that you're perceiving, maybe they're just fake. Maybe they're just illusions. Like, how in the world would you... Would you defend something like that, right? And people, I know you may be sitting there because the first time I read anything like this, I thought something similar, like, this is ridiculous. Like, why, why in the world would I waste my time trying to read through the fact that someone's trying to argue that everything that we see is an illusion, which is an epistemological argument. It's a knowing argument, right? But we have to, if we want to be intellectually honest, we have to say, yeah, okay, maybe... This whole thing's an illusion. So we'll come back to that one, okay? 
I'll waste your, your time just a little bit on that argument, and then we'll move on. Number two, um, that the, the universe, this box, is actually eternal. So remember, that was, that was premise number two, right? That the, the box is eternal. I'll give you a big fancy word for this. It's self-existent. It's self-existent and eternal. In other words, the universe has always been here, or at least some part and parcel of it, right? It's always been here. That is the, one of the dominant views held in the 19th, up through the 19th century, and still is in elite culture today, some, to some extent, also held today, okay? That the box is eternal. And if it is, everything within the box is obviously self-explanatory, right? I just gave you an overview of that explanation. In the beginning were the particles, particles, complex stuff, complex stuff made, other complex things, living cell, living cell eventually gets more complex, divides, gets to you, you thought up the idea of God, boom, we're here, okay? Took a few, few million years, but nonetheless, we're here, right? Uh, number three is, and this is under, um, on your handout, it should be, Yeah, it should be under number three. There we go. Um, that the, um, the box is self-created. Okay? So I'll say that again. Number three, the argument for the possibility of this box is that it made itself. Now, how would it do that? Well, by the way, this is the leading argument today. Okay, this is the leading intellectual argument today. That there's nothing outside the box and nothing made the box. And we have to be careful here what we mean by nothing. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards was once asked, what is nothing? And he gave maybe the best definition I've ever read on this. And Edwards, if you've ever read anything of Jonathan Edwards, he's hard to read anyway, but he was really funny. I don't know if he had much of a sense of humor, but he definitely seemed to have one here. He said the definition of nothing is what rocks dream of. And doggone it, he may be right, right? So we have to be careful what we mean by nothing, all right? There's a famous book, I'll quote from it in a minute, and a very famous physicist by Lawrence Krauss, The Universe from Nothing. Subtitle is, Why is there something rather than nothing? Um, that's the age-old question. That's what's called the prime reality question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Right? Because if ever were there a time when there was absolutely nothing, zero, Nothing, no time, no space, nothing, no God, nothing. Why would there be something now? And the obvious answer is there would be nothing now. So why is there something rather than nothing? And Krauss, who is an ardent atheist, he's one of the five horsemen of the new atheism, or at least he, he should be, um, makes this case from the idea that the universe created itself out of nothing. And he wrote a whole book, and I read the whole book, and I'll give you part and parcel of that argument at the very end. Uh, number four is this, that this um, universe, this box, was created by something that is eternal and that is self-existent. And not only is that possible, but I'm going to make an argument this morning that it's actually necessary. We have to have this. It's logically necessary, but it's not just logically necessary. Here's another big word. 
It's ontologically necessary too. And that big word, ontology, once again, is this idea of being. This box has being. You have being. These pews, this building, this universe. And yet we know, friends, that every being that we run into is contingent and finite. It goes away. So if we have everything there is here, how can we get something out of something else that's contingent and finite? And logic would tell us, actually demand, and creation itself will too, as Paul writes, that there must be something that's beyond us, that's eternal, and has these characteristics that Paul talks about as well. So I'm jumping ahead of myself, love this argument, let me back up um, and go to the handout and take these kind of one at a time, okay? So, number one. By the way, once again, I'm borrowing this, the way this is done, not the, not the boxes, but um, what I'm going to do here is hopefully do a process of elimination. Like if we can get rid of, I've given you four options, and there are only four options. And if I can get rid of three and narrow it down to one, then hopefully I've given you a pretty decent argument. And I've done it that will suffice and be sufficient that it's reasonable and rational. Okay? So um, this is an argument of elimination done by St. Augustine. So I'm borrowing from, from church history of maybe one of the smartest dudes in church history of Augustine. So here we go. Number one, the box is eternal. Or I'm sorry, the box is an illusion. An illusion. So how in the world would, if you were pressed on that, how in the world would you defend something that seems so preposterous and utterly ridiculous to say that everything that you see is an illusion you're an illusion, everything's an illusion. Doesn't that seem like a gigantic waste of time? And if you are thinking that, I would, you'd, I would be on your side. It does seem like a gigantic waste of time to think something like that. And yet, we are posed with the question, and I think it's worthwhile to answer the question. So how in the world would you answer the question, this box, the universe is an illusion, you're an illusion? And there's actually an easy answer to this. Um, and the easy answer to this is at least this point, and then if you want, I can get a little bit more fun with this as well. It's kind of a fun thing to think about. If everything is an illusion, then you have to ask the question, well, what is having the illusion? Because you can't have an illusion having an illusion, because an illusion is nothing. Tracking with me? So something has to have the illusion. Now, can we have illusions? Like, can you be making this up right now? Yeah, technically, you're good. But, notice where I started with that. You. You would have to be thinking that as well. So this is easily dismissed, right? So if at least one thing exists, we know that you know that you exist. Even if you say, okay, I'm having an illusion. Well you are the one having the illusion, right? A very famous mathematician came at this a little bit different way. It's the same argument. Uh, and it's a guy by the name, it's a French mathematician in the 17th century. By the way, in the 17th century, mathematicians were philosophers. Philosophers were mathematicians. Just, it, there's no distinction, right? 
And there's a famous um, mathematician in the 17th century by the name of Rene Descartes. And if you're familiar with um, um, Descartes' argument, it's the, same, it's the same argument. By the way, he stole that from Augustine, too. Most people stole most things from Augustine. Augustine made the same argument, right? Um, Descartes just put it a different way. <clears throat> and Descartes, who was a rationalist, wanted to know, like, what's one idea that's so clear and distinct that if you doubted the idea, the idea would be even more true, would be truer? Like, what's one thing, like, what's, what's a clear and distinct idea, an idea that's indubitable, he said. It's, it's really fun to read him, to see him work through this. And really quick, here's how he came to this idea, which applies directly to our analogy here. He said that, well, there's one thing that you can never doubt if you're trying to reestablish certainty about the world. He says that you can never doubt that you're doubting. Because if you doubt that you're doubting, guess what? You're doubting. And to doubt doubt is to doubt. <laughs> and you're like, this is the stupidest thing. Like, anybody can come up with this, right? Well, this is why it's called a self-evident argument, right? But he doesn't stop there. He says, well, what's, this is a great question, like, what's required to have a doubt? And he said, well, what's required to have a doubt is a thought. You have to be thinking in order to be doubting. Do you, does anyone doubt that? It's a bad joke. Um, there, a doubt requires a thought, but he pushes the argument. He said, well, what's, what would be required to have a thought? Well, you would have to have a thinker to do that, right? So you have to have a thinker to have a thought, you have to have thought to have doubt. And he comes up with this famous slogan, or this statement, and it's in Latin. You've got to do a little Latin, right? Congito ergo sum. I think, ergo, therefore, sum, I am. I think, therefore, I am. And what he proved is that he didn't prove that you existed. He proved that he existed. But you can take that same line of argument and apply it to yourself as well. Friends, the universe is not an illusion. Can we have illusions? Yeah, of course we can. We can, we can take a different a kind of medications, and those medications may have us to have illusions about the world. Um, but we're talking about someone in their right mind who's in right thinking. And even in that, that person exists. I know that seems perhaps silly to you, but I hope to have shown you that we can do away with number one that the universe is not an illusion. You exist. Okay? And by extension, because of that, that has massive implications. If anything exists, cosmological argument, if anything exists, therefore God exists. Now, I've jumped massively in that argument. If anything exists, God exists. And I hope to get to the, that argument of why that is. How do, I, how do I get to that, that God would exist? Because you exist and I exist. Okay, so that's number one. Anybody questions over that? I've just wasted five to ten minutes of your time showing you that you are not an illusion. Does that make sense? Do you doubt me? Okay, I'll stop with that. All right, number two. I'm assuming you're laughing. I'm going to pretend you're laughing because you're 
covered. Um, number two is that the box is eternal. The box is eternal. It's self-existent. So I'm going to camp out here a little bit, and the reason is it's a really important place to camp out. Okay? Um, this argument, this idea that the universe, the box, is eternal, um, got its real roots in the 19th century. Okay? And so let me give you the bidding once again. There's some massive things that happened in the 19th century. I teach a, a college class uh, called College World Lit, and I treat it kind of as sort of a history of ideas class. And I, I, we, we start all the way from the ancient, actually from the Mesopotamia region, so we read Epic of Gilgamesh, we read all the epics, and we go through it sort of systematically. And in the second semester of the course, we always get to really, the, I, one of the most fascinating time periods in human history is the 19th century. There's so many ideas, so many things happening in the 19th century, okay? And one of the things that's happening is the publication of two books, and they are seminal books, right? Both by Darwin, The Origin of Species, and then quickly followed up by The Descent of Man, okay? And if you've ever got a chance, if you ever get a chance to read Darwin, I would suggest that you read him. He's kind of hard to read. He's from the 19th century, but he's fascinating to read because he's trying to give answers, materialistic answers to why there's everything. Okay, so he's going to give you reason why you think you have a soul and why you think there's God and all this stuff. Um, and so he's fascinated to read from that standpoint. Darwin gave sort of the, the, the foundation for what will be carried over into the 20th century, the idea that everything could be explained with inside the box. So the idea of materialism is, is directly related to, in some ways, to the idea of Darwin, the Darwinism, right? The ism gets carried over into the 20th century and has all kinds of ramifications to it, right? And so the idea is that the universe is eternal, in the beginning were the particles, particles, complex stuff, made cells, end up with you, you end up with the God delusion, right? This is where we're at in the 20th century. Well, I want to slow down for a second and appeal to science to show that this box is actually not eternal. So you remember that second premise on the prior page, right? The, if the universe, if anything has a beginning, must have a cause. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe must have a cause, a beginner. And it was that second premise that we got hung up on. And we got hung up on that in the 19th century. Okay? There were two, I would argue, two major discoveries in the 20th, or in the 20th century. We'll look at one of them today that refute this idea and actually show back, once again, Paul's notion that God has revealed himself, and he's revealed himself clearly, and he's revealed himself by his attributes, his divine power, and his, the attributes of who God is, right? So by looking at this, this argument today, just from a scientific standpoint, we actually start seeing that really clear. To do that, I want to go back to the early teens and particularly early turn of the, the turn of the century, the 20th century, the 1920s. Um, there, was a, there, was a, um, there was a discovery made in the 1920s by a very famous physicist by the name of Edwin Hubble. So I've put, yeah, I don't know if you can see all that. There are, there are three pictures, and there's two of them there. Um, 
There are three pictures I've posted here of one of them, or two of them with Hubble, and um, one with Hubble and another famous physicist by the guy named Albert Einstein. Hubble um, was studying at this very famous uh, domed, he had a, there's a domed telescope, there is, uh, in uh, this, it's called the Palomar Laboratory or Observatory at Mount Wilson in Southern California. And what uh, Hubble, and by the way, you know him because there's a famous telescope named after him. The darn thing's always broken, right? And, but it's named after him. How'd you like to invent something, have this great discovery, have a telescope named after you, and the stupid thing's always broken. Um, but <laughs> Hubble was trying to figure out by looking through this massive dome telescope <clears throat> if the Milky Way were the only galaxy in the universe. Now, we think that's nuts today, right? Because, of course, there are thousands and millions of galaxies and stars, billions of stars that make up those galaxies. But they didn't know that in the 1920s. And so Hubble um, looks through the telescope, and he makes some massive observations. One of them is, is that um, not only are we not the only galaxy in the, the seeable universe, there are millions of galaxies. This is an immense universe. This box um, is immense. Um, and so much so that later, there is a term named after Hubble's discovery called um, um, the, the, the Hubble field, or the deep, the, the deep field of Hubble's discovery. And in some ways, this room is a good illustration of that. So if you look up, I invite you to do that, you see all these canisters of light, right? And each of those canisters of light would represent a galaxy. Except multiply that by millions of galaxies. And so if you take a picture of any part of the night sky, in that picture, and if you magnify it, you'll see these pinpoints of light. Well, we now know that those pinpoints of light are actually galaxies. They're spindle galaxies, they're spiral galaxies. It's beautiful. It's stunning. Well, the other thing that, that Hubble discovered, this is really fascinating, is that these galaxies were actually, in all the directions of the night sky, were actually moving away from us. And he determined that by something called redshift. Redshift. So light, much like sound waves, if, if, they were, if they're receding from you, like if you're stationary, something's moving away from you, um, the light, the, the light waves that are traveling away from you, it'll stretch out the light. And at the end of the ultraviolet spectrum, there's a particular color. If you stretch it out far enough, it's red. And so the light that's, that was being emitted from these receding galaxies were, were, pulling off, were giving off this red light. It's called redshift. It's the same, it's the exact same idea if you ever heard of the Doppler effect. Have you ever been inside of a train? Have you ever been on Dixon Street and the train goes by and eventually it goes, or a motorcycle goes by you, and that drop in pitch well, that's the sound wave getting pulled. That was a great illustration of the motorcycle, I know. That was a drop in pitch, right? So the sound wave gets pulled. That's exactly what's happening. Friends, that had massive implications to it. And the massive implication of this, if I could trade a box for a balloon, is this. Hubble realized with that discovery 
that the universe, so if this is the universe, it's doing this. And if I had little pin marks around this to represent galaxies, those galaxies are receding from one another. They're moving away. That has massive implications to it. And the massive implication is <clears throat> that the universe, in order for it to be moving apart, well, if you, what's called back extrapolation, if you let the air out of the balloon, if you go back in time, you get further, further back, further, further back. If you go all the way out, well, the, the universe had a start point. And if it had a start point, well, then that upset the whole notion of what was carried over from the 19th century, that the box is eternal. Now, across the ocean was a guy with wild hair, Albert Einstein, right, who was pretty smart, understatement, was pretty smart of his own accord, right? And Einstein, mathematically, had already come to the same conclusions that Hubble had reached by his observation. <clears throat> the problem was that Einstein was still of the mindset, because he admitted this, I'm not making this up, he admitted this, um, was of the mindset that the universe can't be expanding because it's eternal. So it doesn't have a start. So Einstein literally did this. And later he admitted this is the biggest mistake of his academic career. He created what he called the cosmological constant. And he inserted that into his equation. So his equations were that the universe was actually expanding. And he couldn't accept that. Philosophically, he couldn't accept that um, just from what he'd been taught. So he invented this, what he called his words, cosmological constant. He inserted it into his equations. And when he did that, it made the universe static. Okay? He fudged. He fudged the data. So if you've ever taken a physics class, so if you're in a college or high school and taken a physics class and you have the, this is called dry labbing, um, where <clears throat> if you have an experiment, like you, the hockey puck goes across the table and you come out with these equations and you know it's supposed to do this, and, right? But, you know, it's, your friends are wanting to go to lunch and you're ready, you're like, this is stupid, why am I doing this? So you fudge the data, like, it's not coming out right, so you fudge the data. That's what, that's what the most brilliant physicist of the 20th century did. He fudged the data. He admits this. Hubble invites Einstein over to the US at the Palomar Observatory in Southern California. And he looks through the, he looks through the lens of the, the telescope. And there's this famous scene, and I don't know if you can see this well, where Einstein's looking through the, 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 uh, the telescope. And later he comes out and they have this press conference. He's smoking a pipe. Hubble's, in, by the way, in the backdrop there. He's the one smoking the pipe in the background. And Einstein says, um, it would appear that the universe indeed had a beginning. It had a, it had a start. Now, these are the two most famous scientists and <clears throat> physicists of the 20th century. Right? Einstein admitted, yeah, what I did, I fudged. Fast forward into the latter half of the 20th century. Two guys, 
One, by the name of Stephen Hawking, famous physicist is in the wheelchair, had, had Lou Gehrig's disease. He passed away, I don't know, about five years ago. And his partner, Roger Penrose, so they're pictured here as well. Um, they, and there will not be a quiz on this later, so don't worry. They solved Einstein's field equations for general relativity, okay? Like, how powerful is gravity? They're brilliant dudes, okay? So... Hubble made the observation that the universe had a beginning in time, okay? That the universe had a start point, a beginning in time. But what about space? Time and space are interrelated. And so Hawking, this, it's called the Hawking-Penrose Singularity Theory, or theorem. And they said this, that if you take the universe, once again, if you go back in time, all the way back to the beginning, right? that gravity is such, where gravity is so powerful, it will start to curve in on itself. And everything that gets pushed together gets curved. And it gets a little tighter, and it gets a little bit tighter. You take the balloon, you crunch it up a little tighter, and you get a little tighter, and you push and push and push a little tighter. What you get to, according to the Hawking-Penrose Singularity Theorem is this, you get to absolute zero. Question. So this is a materialistic question. How much space, how much material can you fit into absolute zero? And the answer is zero. You get nothing. This was an amazing discovery. Amazing. And so much so, it has all kinds of philosophical, theological issues, which oftentimes in modern science, we don't want to approach the question of why. Why is there something rather than nothing? Friends, the universe is not eternal. And we know that just by actually looking at science itself, right? So something to consider. We'll come back to this in a second. Number three, which leads us logically to number three. So I hopefully... I've at least pressed you a little bit. We can do away with option one. We can do away with option two. Hubble Einstein tell us that themselves. Number three is this, is that the box created itself out of nothing. It's self-created. Now, this is the leading argument today, okay? And I didn't make that up, um, so I've quoted this from, or I've mentioned this book. I'll use a quote from him at the end of today. So there's a very famous book put out a few years ago by another physicist named Lawrence Krauss, who is <clears throat> a devout atheist. Uh, he is an <clears throat> he's an anti-theist. He moves beyond atheism. Okay, <clears throat> and Krauss wrote this book titled "A Universe from Nothing: um, Why Is There Something Rather Than Nothing?" Right. So we have to be careful here what he means by nothing. So when Krauss says that there's nothing, he means there's actually something. Okay. So it's like, what? <laughs> well, what Krauss means is that there's prob there was probably, what he means by nothing is that there's empty space. But empty space is still something. Okay. So he says out of empty, spa <coughs> empty space, you can still get something from nothing. The reason that you're here. There's no God. 
The reason that you're here is because of empty space and quantum fluctuations within that space. But I will have to admit, toward the end of the book, he does give a, a head nod and a strong one to the fact that nothing could mean absolutely nothing. Okay, zero. By the way, the word nothing means a no thing. Nothing is a no thing. Okay. This is the leading scientific argument today. Nothing. Okay. So let me pose to you why that has problems. You can't see that already. I'm sure that you can. Let me give you two reasons. Two reasons why the universe from nothing has some problems. Reason number one is the law of causality. Because if you say that the universe created itself out of nothing, what you're saying is that the universe, this box, had to be before it was. It had to be and not be at the same time and in the same relationship. Friends, that is a nonsense statement. Okay? I don't care how you cloak that. That's a nonsense statement. There's, you have abandoned rationality by saying that. And if you abandon rationality, you're abandoning science. You have nothing, you have no foothold here. Number two is that it also challenges the very issue of the law of causality. Remember John Stuart Mill I mentioned a few minutes ago, right? Every effect must have an antecedent cause. And if you argue that the universe created itself, you're saying that the universe is an uncaused effect. And that is, that is a nonsense statement to be made. Okay? Now, I'll stop here for a second. Does that make sense? Anybody want to ask me anything on that one? Let me pose something to you because some of you in here are tracking with me, sort of, and some of you in here I know, and some of you are watching, are very well versed on perhaps some of these arguments. And one of the things you're going to push back, and rightly so, you should push back, is well, what about quantum mechanics or quantum physics? Because the universe works in a particular way, in big scale, and then it works seemingly on a really strange way on a small scale. By the way, Einstein developed his general, his theory of general relativity and his theory of special rel relativity. And he realized that on the big scale, things work in a predictable way. But on a really tiny scale, like on a quantum scale, things behave very strangely. And we've done experiments where things, particles, seem to erupt into existence and then go out of existence. And this is the premise of Krauss's book. He says because of those quantum fluctuations, the world popped into existence. So what do you do with something like that? Right? If you're not a physicist and you don't want to spend the time reading this, like, that sounds pretty formidable. Like, what do you do with something like that? That's a good question. Right? So this, by the way, drove Einstein crazy because he tried to give a theory of everything. It's called toe, theory of everything, where it would combine both of these two, this general relativity and special relativity. Like, can you have a theory that would make both of them make sense? Because right now, they don't seem to make, they don't match up. This is the great quandary in physics today. And we haven't 
Physicists have not come at a conclusion. They've got theories, like string theory, like everything's reduced down to this vibrating string that you can't see or will ever be able to see or test. Or that there's multiple universes called M-theory. There's these meta-laws, right? So the universe is actually fluctuating, right? And you have things popping in existence and popping out existence. So what do you do with something like that? Well, let me leave you with two thoughts by two scientists who are not Christian, okay? And one of them is by Niels Bohr. And Niels Bohr said, well, these things are doing, they're popping in and out of existence because that's their nature to do that. It's built into them. Which poses a lot of questions, like who would build these things into these things? And what would they be popping out of? <laughs> you still have the idea of nothing. And friends, you can't get something from nothing. There's a famous saying, ex nihilo nihil fit. Out of nothing, nothing comes because nothing can come. Okay? Are the instrumentations that we're using affecting the results of the experiment? So Bohr says it's because of the nature of the, of the things, but that poses some, bad, some really interesting questions. Max Planck is the other guy, and he gives a different answer, and he says the answer is not because of the things that the nature of the particles, but it's because of... It's, it's a knowing problem. And I think he's right here. He says it's a knowing problem. And it's a knowing problem because we don't know all the forces, all the things in the known universe. So we make observations of things happening. And friends, I do not doubt that people see these things happening. I don't doubt that in the least. What I'm doubting and what Max Planck is doubting is this, drawing inferences from those observations and making them truth. And the inference is this, think we see something pop into existence and then go out of existence, something came out of nothing, that's how we got the universe. And that is the most arrogant of all arrogance to say that, because by saying that, you are admitting omniscience. You're admitting that you know everything in the known universe. It's called the indeterminacy theory, and it should be renamed um, the undeterminacy theory. It's undetermined why these things are happening. That's the scientific way. That's the, um, that's the way of humility to say things are happening and we don't know why they're happening. But if you say that something's coming from nothing, out of nothing, then you have to rectify the fact that you have pulled out from underneath the rug any way of knowing science at all, any way of knowing anything at all. And that's craziness. And if you want to run to that end of the argument of irrationality, you have to let people do that. And friends, I've known people who do that. They'll go there and say, well, logic doesn't exist. So I can't apply it to this argument. And I said, well, you just use logic to apply it to make an argument. Right? So what we want to be in these situations is intellectually honest and say, I don't know why these things are happening. They seem to be happening. The smartest people in physics can't figure this out either. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to say, well, something's coming from nothing. There is no God. Let's move on. That is the height of arrogance to say something like that. And by the way, even if it is of its own nature, then that can't be God, which I've heard people make that argument, like string theory, right? That must be God. Well, if something's coming in and out of existence, that can't be God either, because something has to be eternal for it to be God, eternal and self-existent, and even those things aren't. 
And that leaves us with a lot of questions to be asked. So we've looked at three things to explain the origin or the possibilities of the box. It's not an illusion. It's not eternal. Um, it didn't create itself. It's logically impossible to say that. If you want to revert back to something being eternal, I would revert you back to point number two. The universe had a beginning. Everything had a beginning. It's contingent. Which leaves us with number four. That the box was created, and I'm borrowing back on, I know I'm Paul's words here, by the things that have been made. Made is presupposing creation. That something that is eternal and self-existent made everything. Notice I didn't say God here because I haven't made that argument yet. But something has, and if it's some, by the way, if it's something eternal and self-existent, we can, we can put the name God onto that, I think. Because we don't have any categories for that. We're not eternal. We're not self-existent. And yet something has to be. By the way, if I held to number three, that the universe was created itself, I would have to rewrite the first line in Genesis 2. And here's how that would read. Genesis 1.1, rewritten in a materialistic way. Um, in the beginning, nothing created the heavens and the earth. A no thing created everything. Life out of ultimately death, darkness, chaos. Now, I know people that you would present that to, they would reject that because they reject the scriptures, they reject the God of the scriptures, but at least logically speaking, a no thing is nothing. And nothing is no thing. And that's a logical impossibility. So why would we land on number four? Why is this so compelling? And if it's not, it's my failure to make this case that it should be compelling. And the reason is this. The reason this is so compelling is because you're here. Not necessarily here in this building, but that you exist. If anything exists, God exists. Why is that? Because everything in the known universe is contingent, it's derived, it's dependent. And if you push this all the way back through contingent, derived, dependent beings, you don't get, even if it's a circle, I haven't heard this argument once. What if you have an infinite number of finite beings? Finite meaning you're going to die, right? You're not going to live forever. What if you have an infinite number of finite beings? And eventually, those infinite number of finite beings will get to you. You have an infinite number of finite beings. We'll just get to you. That's how we'll explain it, right? Well, let me give you a silly illustration. What if I had an infinite number of finite dominoes? And I had domino X right here. I have an infinite number of them. Now, we still, what, what if all those dominoes had to fall in order to get to domino X to get to you? How long would it take to get to domino X if you have an infinite number? It would take an infinity. In other words, you wouldn't get to domino X. It would never get to you. Now, friends, you can have an inf I know you can have an infinite number of numbers. I get that. But we're not talking about numbers. We're talking about being. Being. And you can't get to being by having finite beings. 
Friends, something exists and exists eternally. Or you and I would not be here, nothing would be here. That's not just logically necessary, that's ontologically necessary. You have to have being. And that being has to be independent, self-existent, eternal, and I'm going to make a case later, holy. You have all these attributes that Paul says God actually built into the creation itself so that we are actually without excuse. As we wrap this up, a couple of points I want to make. One is this. It's always really fascinating to me um, in the Old Testament in, in Exodus when God reveals himself to Moses in the Midianite wilderness in this burning bush. And Moses asks these really two pivotal questions when he encounters God. He's like, who am I and who are you? Right? Two good questions to ask. And the answer that God gives about himself is always really fascinating to me in light of this argument. Because God gives his sacred name, right? And it says, I am who I am. Notice what he doesn't say. By the way, he uses the present tense of the form to be. And we can't get through a sentence without using almost, without, without using some form of to be. Being, the verb. Anytime you learn a language, you learn the to be verbs. It's being. And God says, I am who I am. He doesn't say, I was or I am becoming, but I am in the present tense eternally. I am who I am. It's always really fascinating to, to, to see that. Uh, and number two is, when Paul is making his own apologetic, and by the way, if you've never read this, it's my favorite chapter in the, in the New Testament. I would strongly encourage you to read this. Acts 17, Paul goes to the Areopagus. He's making an argument. He's making an apologetic. He eventually gets to the resurrection of Jesus. But in the course of that, he quotes from one of the most famous, or for the Greeks, one of their most famous poets, Epimenides, and Paul says to them, to these Athenians who are really smart and they're worshiping everything under the sun and the sun itself, he says that um, the thing that you worship in ignorance, let me tell you about him. And then he quotes Epimenides and he says, in him, in God, we live, we move, we have our being, life, motion, being. Those are the three things the Greeks were after. Where did life come from? Where does motion happen? How do we get motion? Like you have an unmoved mover? This is Aristotle. And then where do we get where do we get being? Where does that come from? This is not just a 20th century idea. This is an ancient idea. And Paul, quoting a Greek poet, connects those three things to the resurrected Christ and eventually to the God himself. We have life, motion, being in God. We get this from him. We don't get that from ourselves, ultimately. Paul's making this argument. If you push this back, ultimate being comes from the supreme being. We would call him God. My friends, I have, the only thing I've proven, hopefully to you, is that there is an uncaused cause, an unmoved mover, the universe had a beginning, and it had a beginning because it had a beginner. It had something to start it. That's the only thing I've proven. I have not proven anything else beyond that. 
but I've at least taken you up hopefully to that point as well. So one of the things I want to do next week is to look at a little bit more of this intention of who God is, his purpose and intention in nature. And to answer this question, how do you get from a self-existent eternal being who has the power of being within himself, and that's the definition of God in so many ways, the self-existent eternal being that has the power of being within himself, how do you get to that, to the God of the Scriptures? How do you get from what some people argue, you just argued God of philosophy, but how do you go from that to the God of the Scriptures? Friends, God is more than an uncaused cause and an unmoved mover. He is more than that. But friends, he is not less than that. He is more than an uncaused cause and unmoved mover. But he's not, he's not, he's not, he's much more than that, but he's not less than that. He is most certainly, the first thing that we, God reveals about himself, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was not nothing. In the beginning, God created, creator. This is what Paul is latching onto, right? Romans 1, he's latching on. Well, I'll leave you with this quote from Lawrence Krauss. This is in the epilogue in his book. Brief paragraph. Here we go. Krauss says this. A universe without purpose or guidance may seem for some to make life itself meaningless. That may be the understatement of all understatements. Okay. It may mean it may seem like meaningless. You come from nothingness. It may seem kind of meaningless, but hang on, there's hope in meaningless. I'll stop with the sarcasm. I'll read what he says. He says, for others, including me, Krauss, such a universe is invigorating. It makes the fact of our existence even more amazing. And it motivates us to draw meaning from our own actions. And when you when you factor out God you're going to have to find meaning ultimately in your own preferences. And by the way, that goes for morality too. Okay? And it motivates us to draw meaning from our own actions and to, to make the most of our brief existence in the sun, our life under the sun, right? Back to Ecclesiastes. Simply because we are here, and then how he ends this paragraph. Listen to this. That we're here, blessed with consciousness and with the opportunity to do so. Blessed with consciousness. Friends, the fact that you have consciousness, awareness, is not because it came out of nothing and death. It's because it came from some consciousness that's beyond you and beyond myself. We call this consciousness this being, God. And next week, we get a little more glimpse into his nature and, as Paul says, his attributes. And we see that clearly, hopefully we'll see that clearly affirmed in the scriptures as well. Let's pray.